Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, secrets don't come with price tags. People do. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I am joined by author Tom Parker, and we discuss the complexity of counterterrorism and how to avoid the terrorist trap. Avoiding the Terrorist Trap is the name of Tom's fantastic book. It's a very in-depth book, and so I think it would be of interest to academics, policymakers, and possibly those who have a casual interest in counterterrorism and the issues around fighting terrorism. There are some special discount codes below. If you just scroll down through your app now, you will see them. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us in a few ways. First of all, please share this podcast with your friends, family and cohorts. Please do write a review on your favourite podcast app. Those reviews help people find the podcast. I now have a new Patreon Friends of the Podcast tier, and that's the only tier now. And if you select to do that, you'll have my undying gratitude. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. And once in a while, I will I will do my best to put a little extra in there to make it worthwhile for you. Maybe some Zoom drinks or a Q&A, maybe a behind-the-scenes look at the making of this podcast. If you do enjoy this podcast, you may like my film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is available on Amazon and iTunes. It's an 18-minute contemporary spy drama written and directed by myself. So if you have a spare 18-20 minutes and you've uh, exhausted your Netflix and Amazon Prime, check it out. And please do write a review after you've seen it. And without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's nice to be here. Great to have you on. For the benefit of our listeners, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional experience? So I've, I've had probably one of the stranger careers out there. I started off as a, an officer in the British Security Service mm. in the in the 1990s. I then uh, left uh, the security service to work for the United Nations, yep. um, spent four years in the Balkans working for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia as a war crimes investigator. Uh, both in Kosovo and, and central Bosnia. Um, then went to Iraq when the Iraq conflict broke out and was um, one of the British representatives in the Coalition Provisional Authority in Baghdad. Um, then kind of took a step out of that career path, went into academia for a bit, mm-hmm. did a bit of teaching um, in, in America, uh, at Yale and Bard, also at the, the John Jay School of Criminal Justice in New York and the National Defense University at Fort Bragg. Um, did a little bit of work with the Defense Institute for International Legal Studies, which is a sort of a JAG core entity in the US, and also a few lectures at the Joint Special Operations University. Um, then took a, a bit of a radical plot shift and went to work for Amnesty International. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, I spent three and a half years as Amnesty's spokesman on terrorism, counterterrorism, and human rights in the United States. So this is for AIUSA. 
um, which also meant I was one of the monitors that went down to Guantanamo for the military commissions process, and then kind of took a turn out of the human rights world again back into the UN. And I've spent sort of five years working for different UN agencies involved in counterterrorism, the Counterterrorism Implementation Task Force, which is now the UNOCT, yeah. um, and UNODC, which is the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Uh, I've also spent quite a lot of time as a consultant in and around that, um, and spent uh, three and a half years uh, in Iraq, working for the European Union on a project with the Office of the National Security Advisor in Baghdad. So it's uh, a lot of a lot of travel around the world, a lot of different places, um, mostly in the counterterrorism field. A little bit of war crimes and a little bit of organized crime. I was seconded to the police for a while as well. Wow, wow! So you've had a, a massive career, there. and the Balkans sounds very interesting. A close friend of mine is a refugee from uh-huh. uh, the Bosnian conflict, but uh, I suppose that's a, a topic for maybe another chat. But uh, I'm sure you must have seen and, and some fascinating and horrible things. Uh, yes, it was. I mean, I will say it's a, it's an incredibly rewarding work. Um, you know, you you do absolutely hear and, and and see some horrible things. I worked on mass grave exhumations uh, in Kosovo a fair amount. Um, which is obviously is, is difficult, um, but you do you know you're doing important work. You feel like you're you're making a difference, and probably the most important thing, and it's a very hackneyed phrase, is you're bearing witness. And you know, for the people who experience um, these kind of crimes, being able to tell their story, to have somebody come from another country and listen to it and take it so seriously, um, can be an important part of their healing process. So. You know, while the international justice part of it can be very slow and quite unsatisfying, because, you know, at the end of the day, a very small minority of people are really held to account, the process can be quite productive and quite helpful to people. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, I, it was probably the job that I, I derived the most satisfaction from. Excellent. Well, before we go into the details of your book titled Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, I'd like to know what inspired you to, to write this book. Well, the, uh, the, the time I spent in Iraq in 2003. Yeah. Um, so I, I went out there. I was actually out there to help set up the tribunal that ultimately put Saddam Hussein on trial. Um, so I wasn't there in a, in a counterterrorism uh, capacity. But, you know, I, I'd spent a large chunk of my career up until that point working in counterterrorism. Um, both Middle Eastern counterterrorism and, and Irish uh, counterterrorism. And so I, I you know, experienced a lot doing that, uh, a lot of mistakes that we'd made particularly, um, mostly historical because by the 1990s, the UK had learned from a lot of the mistakes that had made in the 1970s, but I was familiar with what had happened with internment and, and in, um, interrogation and depth and mm. uh, things like Bloody Sunday, right? I mean, the, the negative mm. impact uh, when you do muscular counterterrorism and it goes wrong. Um, and I was there at the time that stories were starting to leak out about the treatment of detainees. Um, you know, I could see the way that we were interacting on the streets with the Iraqis. And, you know, I, I could see on a day to day basis just how we were losing any kind of connection with the population. Uh, when I arrived, it was possible people would give you lifts. Local Iraqis would give you the lifts. You'd jump in the back of a pickup truck. Um, I did that a couple of times and uh, hitch rides back to the green zone. Uh, that mm. was in the summer. It would have been suicide mm. to do that by October. And so you, you, know, you could see everything we were doing wrong on a daily basis. Mm. And when I came back, I, I had the opportunity to, it's kind of a weird story in, in that um, uh, the big issue for the UK is that the Americans and the Iraqis, the governing council that had been established, wanted to have the death penalty for Saddam. So they wanted this tribunal to have the death penalty. And that was a red line for the British government. And so the British team was ultimately withdrawn in, at the beginning of 2004. 
uh, and myself along with it, um, that I was lucky enough to be offered a, a fellowship at Yale um, to spend six months um, working on, on terrorism-related research. Mm. Um, and I just had six months to think about what I'd seen and, and start, start digging into the historical record to see whether there were lessons that could be learned and applied in Iraq from other countries' experiences of terrorism. That's how it started. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, as you can probably tell from the 800-page book, uh, that, uh, <laughs> yes. that I got quite obsessed by it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't believe <laughs> Oh, man. Now, when, I, when that book first turned up, I was like, my God, <laughs> this is huge. But uh, no, it's brilliant. It is brilliant. And it's a very, I think, a very important book. And I do hope, despite, you know, people maybe being a bit intimidated by it, that people do engage with it because it is, it's, it's very good. It's, it's very detailed. Well, I'm a first... A first-time author, and the big lesson I've learned is don't write, a, write an 800-page book <laughs> because, <laughs> because yes, it, it is it is intimidating and it's long and it's expensive. So, you know, those which I probably shouldn't say on air, but um, uh, you know, it, it is the the problem that I'd encountered was, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'd done a lot of training on human rights standards, or I in the period after Iraq, from um, gosh, from about 2004 to around about probably 2015. Mm. I would do several international training missions a year where I would be talking about um, human rights within the context of counterterrorism all over the world. So I'd be doing it in places like you know, Lebanon or Rwanda or Latvia or Thailand or Guatemala or Colombia a couple of times, um, you know, which, as you can imagine, is not the easiest sell. And what I discovered doing that was what really caught people's attention were the real-world examples you could give where... It either worked or it went wrong, you know, and what lessons could be derived from it. Um, and when I was at Amnesty, the human rights community, they, they don't talk in those terms. And they, there's a good reason for that, because they are about the law. And they're about international obligations, international legal standards, right and wrong and morality. And those are not necessarily the primary concerns of a lot of people involved in counterterrorism in the trenches. You know, they're, they're very com- concerned with their domestic legislation, but they're not consumed with international considerations. Um, and, you know, they, they oftentimes, you know, there's a, a bias towards muscular and aggressive action in law enforcement and the military. You know, they are, you know, they're, they're careers that attract forceful personalities. And, you know, we ask a lot of people who do those jobs to go to dangerous places. And so they have a bias to action. I wouldn't put it any further than that. But, but sometimes the smartest thing you can do is not act. Um, you know, so to sit back a little bit, absorb punishment occasionally. Uh, and, and, and then act with purpose rather than act immediately and aggressively. And so I sort of started uh, acquiring all these different examples, um, whether it was looking at uh, the way people are being interrogated and it had backfired, or whether it was the use of military force for crowd control or um, special operations. Um, and I started to see patterns emerging. Um, and those were the things that I would, would talk about when I was doing training, and it got a far better reaction from the people we were training than saying, look, well, here's the international government on civil and political rights. And it came into force in 1976. And Article 1 says this, and Article 2 says that. You know, I mean, that, that, that's a very easy way to put an entire room to sleep. <laughs> and, you know, if you're going to engage the people who are on the front lines, you've got to give them stories that will make their life safer. And, you know, I, I can remember doing a, a training course for a, a room full of Pakistani officers, military officers. And one of the, you know, we were talking about the dangers of torture and, um, you know, I was sort of talking about, you know, I would never say that torture never works because there are examples of people who do tell truth, truthful things under torture. 
But as an approach, you know, it typically does not work very well. And there are millions of examples of people who've resisted it, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed being an obvious one. Um, so what I said to the guys, I said, okay, uh, one, one of the, the officers put his hand up and says, well, I've talked to people and they told me stuff. And I said, well, can, do you mind talking about the context? And he said, well, we were, you know, um, there was an area we were working in with a, a high insurgent uh, level of activity. So we were in this one village and I grabbed somebody and I held their water, their, their head underwater in a, in, a, in a water tank until they told me what I wanted to know. And I said, okay, what was it like patrolling through that village after that? Well, I said, oh, God, they hated us. And I said, did you lose anybody? And he said, yeah, about four people on that tour. I said, whereabouts? Said, Mostly around that village. Yeah, so you said to him, okay, well, do you think there might have been a connection between the way you treated that individual and what subsequently happened? And then you can get people to start thinking about it a little bit more. Mm, um, mm. And, and that, that works, I think, with about 30% of the people you talk to. Whereas just telling people what the international law is and telling them that's what good people do and that's what moral people do, I don't think that persuades many people. No, I, you know, I don't know why it came into my head. I don't know if you remember that scandal involving a British officer who shot an Afghani. The one on camera. Yeah, and he says, as he's about to do it, something on the lines of... Turn your cameras off, boy, I'm about to commit a war crime or a yeah. great breach of the Geneva Convention. Yeah. That, that he was let off, ultimately. I mean, he was convicted and then the conviction was overturned. Mm. Is, you know, as a former war crimes investigator, mm. an absolute scandal. I mm. mean, I, I cannot see any justification for for... You know, I mean, it was all caught on camera. Yeah. He clearly had the intent. He clearly knew what he was about to do. Yes. Um, and he killed, a, you know, he killed a person who was all the combat. He called, you know, that, that's a war crime. Mm. It's a grave breach of the Geneva Convention. End of story. Mm. Um, and about as open and shut grave breach as I've ever seen. And if you can't hold your own people to account, yeah. what business have you got going to other countries? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's... No, it's true. We'll touch upon this in a minute. I mean, it mm. is, I think, if anything, um, just talking sort of uh, generally for a moment, I mean, um, one of the biggest mistakes, I think, with the whole sort of era of the war on terror is that very point, isn't it? Mm. We we um, have done some terrible things in the pursuit of terrorists and uh, and we've lost our credibility as a result. Well, there's a, there's a great quote that I use in the book from Abu Musab al-Zakawi. So this is him talking about the aftermath of Abu Ghraib um, and the scandal around that. He says, I do not think that any intelligent person remains who believes in the monstrous lie of promised democracy after revelations of Abu Ghraib and the joke of Guantanamo. Mm. You know, I mean, that's a pretty common trope mm. in uh, particularly al-Qaeda propaganda and subsequently ISIS yeah. propaganda. Yeah. You know, there's a reason why when ISIS or al-Qaeda murdered a Western hostage, they dressed them up in an orange jumpsuit at first, yes. right? It's about yeah. creating that sense of moral equivalency. Mm. And to a certain extent, they're not exaggerating that equivalency. I mean, I, I, you know, if you would have asked me who was worse, um, that's a pretty difficult conversation when you've got the mm. pictures of, you know, Iraqi prisoners piled in, you know, stripped naked and piled mm. in a huddle while they're threatened by dogs. Mm. Yeah, that's not a good look either. Um, and it was amazingly damaging to America's reputation abroad. And a lot of Americans realized, a lot of American commanders realized that David mm. Petraeus has this, you know, famous comment, Abu Ghraib and other situations like that are non-biodegradable, which is a fantastic phrase. They don't go away. The enemy continues to beat you with them like a stick. Um, you know, a lot of people get that. And they get the damage. There's a, there's a great quote also from um, a former head of Shimbet talking about Ayash, the engineer, the guy who pioneered the use of suicide vests in, in Hamas. Um, he had been a, a, an engineer, an engineering student, and he wanted to go and study in, in Jordan or Turkey. And the Israelis, to do a master's degree, and the Israelis had refused his exit visa, and he ended up in Hamas. And as a result, I mean, he killed, or at least the devices he prepared, 
you know, killed close to 100 people. Um, and there's a famous quote from the uh, Shimbet, the director general of the time, saying, God, if I'd known what he was going to do, I would have paid for his paid for the fights myself and given him yeah. a million dollars, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's the problem. A lot of the stuff we've done is not smart counterterrorism policy. It's not cost-effective counterterrorism policy. Um, and it's not effective, uh, you know, even, even in its own terms. You know, tactically, occasionally, but strategically, it's nearly always disastrous. And it's really hard. You know, you, you, there's that old famous quote about the IRA saying uh, after the attempt on Thatcher's life in Brighton, you know, you, you, ha- you know, you have to be, you know, we only have to be lucky once, you have to be lucky always. Well, there, there's kind of a, a, a morality equivalent to that. If you want to be seen as legitimate and you want to be seen as occupying the moral high ground, ultimately, if you want to be seen as being in the right, you have to live your values. Um, because hypocrisy is kryptonite to, to your reputation when you're caught breaking them. Um, and that's ultimately what happened to the United States. And, you know, it, th- these things, they, they come home as well. Um, there's a lot of research that's been done on, on the transference of torture techniques from the field to the home, particularly after the Vietnam War, back into police departments in the United States, because a lot of former soldiers end up joining law enforcement organizations. Yeah. And there's a particularly famous case of a unit in Chicago that brought um, torture techniques that they'd used in the Vietnam conflict back to Chicago. Wow, I didn't know that one. Yeah, and and, and then of course you also have the, the the violence people bring back into their own homes, mm. both against directed against their families, but also against themselves. I mean, you know that this is part of the the, the reason the suicide rate is so high. Um, there's a concept in psychology called moral injury. Mm. This idea that that if you feel you've done something wrong, it can be very difficult. You know, most people are at their center; they have a sense of morality particularly if they're religious as well. You know, they have a sense of right and wrong. Mm. Um, and if they feel that they have acted contrary to that, that moral center, it'd be very, very hard to, to, to come to terms with that. Um, and, you know, we've seen in a lot of suicides, oftentimes there is this sense of guilt, um, you know, in the person's story about something that they've done when they were younger, when, you know, necessarily, they might not necessarily have been thinking about it very carefully or thinking it through. As they get older, it becomes harder and harder to live with. Mm. Um, so there's lots and lots of reasons why this uh, kind of approach can blow back or boomerang back on the people who use it, both at a propaganda level, at a human level, at a policy level. Um, and that's, that's the terrorist trap of the book, basically. And terrorists, we know, want you to do that. You know, they're very explicit. If you read interviews with terrorists, if you read communiques, if you read operational manuals, of which there are many, many produced by terrorist organizations, I mean, there is a wealth of literature. Um, one of the points of terrorist doctrine that appears consistently and has appeared consistently for 150 years is this idea of provoking the state into overreaction. Well, let's dig into your book. So the book opens on on how terrorism eludes a precise definition. And obviously in public discourse, there is much debate about what terrorism actually is. So what would you describe terrorism as? As you say, I mean, it's a, this is a really complex question. And, and to be honest, you can make it about as easy or difficult as you want to make it. Mm. Um, you're, you're never going to come up with a precise definition that kind of captures every single example that you want to capture. But the one that the working definition that I use in the book is, is terrorism is the intentional use of or threat to use violence against civilians or against civilian targets in order to obtain political aims. Mm. And that gets to me to the heart of it, yeah. because I like this idea. There's a, in, in um, the, the law of war and in the Geneva um, Conventions, there's this concept of the doctrine of distinction, 
when you're fighting wars, you know, you, you have an obligation as a soldier, as a combatant, to avoid sufficient civilian casualties. It's not an absolute ban on killing civilians in the sense that if the law of war anticipates that it's sometimes going to be difficult to separate the civilian population from the combatant force, mm. uh, and so that civilians may be killed, what you cannot do is deliberately set out to kill civilians as the point of your operation. And it's called the doctrine of distinction. Um, and I quite, and that's, that's basically my guiding principle when I'm looking at a group. If a group is deliberately setting out to target civilians, um, is what Alex Schmidt calls the, the civilian equivalent of a war crime or the civil or the peacetime equivalent of a war crime, then that very comfortably for me fits in that bucket of terrorists. But we also do need to step back and acknowledge that, you know, terrorism is a very pejorative label. It is often a label that is used imprecisely. And not only is it a label, you, you have to understand also that people can inhabit multiple identities at the same time, right? It's possible to be a terrorist and to act like a terrorist and maybe be fighting for a legitimate cause. I'll give you an example of that. The, the Nazis referred to the French resistance as terrorists. You'll, you'll see, if you, you look at World War II posters from France, you'll see um, that they actually use terrorismus uh, you know, as, the, as the sort of the banner across the, the top of the poster with the pictures of the people underneath. And you know, some of the acts carried out by the French resistance look and feel a lot like terrorism. Mm. But at the same time, you can't really argue with the fact that they were doing it against a, you know, a, a, a brutal regime that had occupied their country. Mm. So I, I think you have to be very careful um, there's an academic definition. There's typically, in most countries at least, a definition in domestic law um, that can guide you. And one of the interesting debates in the United States at the moment is that there's not really a definition or a law to deal with domestic terrorism. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because there, there, terrorism is defined in the U.S. Criminal Code as something essentially with an international dimension. Um, and although domestic terrorism is referenced in law, it's not referenced as a charge in law, which is quite interesting. The UK, we didn't have um, a crime of terrorism until the year 2000 in the Terrorism Act. So it's not that uncommon for countries not to have a domestic law, but where they do, obviously, that law provides pretty clear guidance on who falls on what side of the line. But of course, not all laws are created equal. Mm. Um, and there are plenty of countries that have introduced legislation that can be used to label perfectly peaceful groups as terrorists. You know, there's a lady locked up in Saudi Arabia at the moment for driving a car. Yeah. And she's been locked up on terrorism charges. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can see how it could be abused. And then at the international level, there's been a tremendous effort to actually reach an agreed definition of terrorism that goes back um, actually about to the 1920s is the first effort. I, I believe it was Romania because a lot of the terrorism in the 20s is coming out of um, the Balkans, mm. um, particularly from, from the Croatians and the Macedonians in, in their struggle against uh, being, being folded into Yugoslavia. And, and so it starts, I think it's the Romanians that, that at the League of Nations first introduced the idea of a terrorism convention. And then uh, I think it's 1934, the king of uh, Yugoslavia and the French foreign minister uh, assassinated in Marseille during a state visit by Macedonians um, and, and uh, Croatians, uh, and I believe with some Italian support. Um, and then you see a move in the 1930s to actually have a terrorism convention, and a convention is drafted uh, in 1937. Um, but ultimately, nobody signs it. And of course, World War II is rapidly um, appearing on the horizon by that point. Um, then you have the post-war period, another attempt to come up with a definition. In fact, there's, there's several attempts. Um, and what we ended up with in the end, because no one could agree with uh, a single functional definition, uh, a single legal definition, you end up with a selection of now, I think it's 19 conventions and protocols about different types of terrorist acts. Yeah. So there's a protocol 
uh, several protocols about protecting aircraft and airports. There's a protocol about protecting oil platforms. There's a protocol about nuclear materials. There's one about um, untraceable explosives. And these actually come together to form sort of an international regime of what can be considered terrorism. And that regime was given particular force by two Security Council resolutions. Um, there's Resolution 1373, which is one of the resolutions after 9-11. Um, and there's another very important one called Resolution 1566, which is the resolution after the Beslan School Massacre. And what they effectively do is give legal force, because they're Chapter 7 resolutions, to this international legal regime. And so they end up with a functional definition that defines terrorism by the acts covered by those 19 protocols and conventions. And, and that is as close as we have at the international level as a sort of a hard definition. But yeah, very, very complicated and very confusing for people. But you know, it, it, it often comes down to that famous test of pornography, right? You, you know it when you see it. And for most people, that's how we respond to terrorism. And it, that, that's why that war crime element, that element of targeting civilians, I think, is the, it's the secret spice. It's the, it's the thing that really makes it stand out, mm. say, guerrilla warfare or sort of insurgent. That's what gives terrorism that unique, pejorative character that it has. You are setting out to kill innocent people, and often by redefining their innocence as not being entirely innocent. But, but the reality is you're killing people. You don't know whether they've done anything or not. You're killing them because by killing these people, one, it's easy, and, and two, you can send a powerful message. We uh, actually had a lot of like terrorist propaganda. If I think about the London bombings, if I remember correctly, the, the terrorist propaganda tries to sort of dehumanize the victims and sort of say they're kind of enemy combatants, don't they? Well, Al-Qaeda in its, in its propaganda makes a, a lot of... Um, or put a lot of explanatory weight on democracy, and uh, you know says, well, look, you voted for them. You know the, your leaders are carrying out the the policies that you voted for, and you know if you vote for somebody else, we'll stop. Um, you know, and that was the message after the Madrid bombing, um, trains bombings. Um, it's absolutely a message that we we heard after the the London transport bombings. And you see it in several of uh, Bin Laden's videotaped addresses as well. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the 9-11 attacks in 2001 have put uh, terrorism at the center of public consciousness. Yet terrorism is not a modern phenomenon, and it's been a tactic used by many groups seeking political change for 150 years, or for over 150 years. You studied the history of terrorism and its uses, so can you just tell us a little bit about sort of what you, you found? So, I, I mean, I have argued in the book, and, and I'm not the first person to make this argument, but um, th there are different ways of looking at it. There, there are two kind of schools of thought about where terrorism comes yes. from, more, more than two, actually. But the, the sort of modern terrorism uh, thesis, at least, there's an idea of waves. So there's this chap called David Rappaport who has this um, very impactful uh, concept of four waves of political terrorism. And he argues that there's a basically an anarchist wave at the end of the 19th century, then an anti-colonial wave uh, in in the beginning of the 20th century through to about the 1940s and 50s. Uh, then he thinks that there's a Marxist wave from the 60s and 70s, and then a religious wave from the 1980s and 90s onwards. Um, and and that you'll see referenced an awful lot in in terrorism research. Um, I I myself don't ascribe to that. I think actually if you go back and you read the history. Um, you'll see that actually there, 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 there are, there, he's right to identify four significant schools of thought. Yeah. I just think they're always there. Um, I, I think you have four very identifiable strains of terrorism. Um, there's a religious strain that goes back and, and, and you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a parlor game to sort of say who's the first, where does it come from? But sort of the patient X, if you like, for religious terrorism, I would argue probably is John Brown, the American abolitionist who, you know, is, is famous for his raid on Harper's Ferry. 
but also you know, for an attack on a Kansas town called um, uh, Potomotomi, where he uh, and his, his uh, followers murdered uh, five residents um, who were pro-slavery. Uh, and he explicitly said, and this is his quote, you know, to make an example and so strike terror. So he would be, if you like, patient zero for religious terrorism, mm-hmm. and that would be around the 1850s. Mm-hmm. Um, allied to that, there's a, a group of um, like-minded um, political extremists that we kind of lump together under different terms. You might call them an exclusionist. Sometimes it's, it's, it's called right-wing extremism. Um, the, the current uh, term du jour is uh, RMT, which is religious, ethnic, uh, ethnically motivated terrorism. But you get, you get this sense of, of essentially sort of nativist um, terrorist organizations that hate outsiders, hate people who are different. Um, and there you would go back to the Ku Klux Klan. Again, uh, another um, terrorist organization that comes out of the U.S. Civil War um, and the occupation of the South. Now, the Ku Klux Klan in the, the 1860s through the 1870s murdered about 3,000 people, wow. um, you know, and that included killing mm-hmm. legislators. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did it, and it actually successful. They derailed the recon- – uh, they, they helped to derail the post-construction, uh, the, the post-Civil War reconstruction campaign. Um, and, you know, the U.S. Army, particularly the 7th Cavalry, interestingly enough, um, led a, a fairly major counterinsurgency campaign against them, but not with success. Um, and then you have two other strains, the sort of the nationalist or anti-colonial strain, um, and that I would trace back to, again, the 1850s and a guy called Felice Orsini, who threw a contact grenade at Napoleon III's carriage in Paris, um, and he was basically targeting Napoleon because he saw Napoleon as standing in the way of Italian unification. Um, that, that attack killed, six, uh, killed eight bystanders. The, the grenade actually bounced off. Um, the carriage and it exploded in the crowd. It injured Orsini as well. Um, and then you have the sort of the, the socialist wave, um, and that 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 would be the one that was identified by Rapoport, and that really starts in Russia um, in the the sort of the eighteen hundreds. Uh, sorry, the eighteen eighties. Uh, actually, a little earlier than that, probably the the eighteen seventies, with a guy called Sergei Nychev. Um He founds an organization called Narodnaya Rasprava or People's Justice. Um, and he he's sort of writes a lot, so he becomes very important because he not only does he have a very brief active career, um, he's also very vocal. So the, there's a lot of um, uh, theory um, associated with his use of violence. He publishes something called the Revolution, uh, the, the, the Catechism of the Revolutionary, uh, where he lays out sort of basically um, precepts that uh, revolutionists, as he describes them, should follow. Um, and interestingly, one of those is, you know, you, you, you let the most bestial officials live because they will drive the people to inevitable revolt. So right there, baked in at the beginning, is this idea of trying to provoke a reaction. That was the same reason why um, John Brown attacked Harper's Ferry, right? Why, why he attacked that federal armory across the border in Virginia, um, you know, in, in, uh, which, which precipitated the, uh, the Civil War. Um, by the way, the Civil War, the American Civil War is really important in the evolution of terrorism. Because it's where you see all this new technology being mm. used for the first mm. time. Also, the development of new approaches, the most significant of which is the, the introduction of skirmishing. And that goes back a little earlier. But there's actually an American general who writes um, a, a very influential strategic um, journal article about how skirmishes have become the fourth line of battle, in addition to infantry, cavalry, and artillery. Um, and this concept of skirmishing was really influential on Irish nationalists. So the very first sort of Irish terrorist groups called themselves skirmishers. 
and many of them were veterans of the Union side in the Civil War um, and had learned a lot of their tactics from that. The Civil War also introduces some interesting concepts in terms of uh, the time bomb, for example, was, was developed by the Confederacy during the Civil War. Um, and the Confederacy also, as uh, a chap called Bernard Sage, played with the idea of basically land privateering, mm. this idea that they would actually allow certain groups of people to act basically as pirates on land. So in the same way that you had in the, the sort of Elizabethan area, letters of mark where you would give a sea captain a, a warrant that would allow them to go off and, and see ships belonging to other countries. This Confederate politician suggested that the Confederacy should do the same thing with basically armed gangs, which was effectively what was what was happening out in, in territories like Kansas and Missouri and groups like the Younger Gang, which uh, Jesse James came out of. That started out as a sort of a, a regular Confederate cavalry unit. Um, and Nathan Bedford Forrest, who ended up as the, the first leader of the Ku Klux Klan, was a Confederate general. And a lot of the, the, the prime movers in the, the, the foundation of the Ku Klux Klan, as you would probably expect, were Confederate veterans. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that also came out when reading a book is about how a lot of terrorist groups have studied previous terrorism quite thoroughly. So we, we talk about um, the contagion effect, mm. and there, there's a couple of different ways of putting this. And it, this is not a concept unique to um, uh, sort of the study of terrorism. Contagion theory, the, the way that ideas spread, you know, is, is studied in a whole range of, of academic disciplines. And, and I wasn't even the first person to apply it to terrorism. That, that, that goes, uh, as far as I'm aware, at least uh, the credit there goes to a, a chap called Peter Waldman. Mm-hmm. Um, Mia Bloom, who you may have heard of, done a lot of work on, on female terrorists and, and, and suicide bombers. She talks a lot about a demonstration effect in the way that different tactics are adopted. But what I'm interested in a little bit more than the tactical side is the strategic side and the way that different terrorists read about um, the the techniques applied by other terrorist groups. And and we've got tons and tons and tons of evidence of this. Let me see if I can give you a couple of examples. Isaac Shamir, who uh, went on to be the Prime Minister of Israel, was active in a Jewish nationalist terrorist group in the 1940s. Mm I think he's Lehi, if I remember correctly. Uh, I think he replaced Avram Stern as the leader of the Stern Gang. Um, He used it as nom de guerre, Michael, right? He chose Michael as his nom de guerre. If you read his memoirs, you know, he says, I I did it specifically in homage to Michael Collins, who was an inspirational figure to me growing up. Um, We know that uh, a leader of um, November 17, the Greek terrorist group, when he was in prison, uh, translated the prison diaries of the Tupameros, a Uruguayan terrorist group. uh, Nelson Mandela, when he was the leader of the Spear of the Nation, not only was taking advice from veterans of the Haganah, so again, the Jewish nationalist um, militant group, uh, Arthur Goldreich um, was one of his advisors. Um, he also studied the Algerian conflict um, and also the, um, the, the Filipino mm. uh, insurgency against Japanese occupation during World War II, both very significant. He writes about that in uh, The Long Walk to Freedom. Um, you could look at Ayman al-Zawahiri, for example, the current leader of Al-Qaeda, um, he actually wrote um, an academic uh, treatise on why the Muslim Brotherhood failed. Um, the leader of the, well, the, one of the very influential religious thinkers um, and political thinkers, uh, Saeed Qutub, um, who, who was very influential on, on the Muslim Brotherhood, actually talked about how um, the Brotherhood had to learn from the experience of Jewish nationalism or Zionism. Um, so the people are constantly trading and stealing ideas from different organizations. The Weather Underground actually named one of its, um, its communiques after a, a, a town that was attacked by John Brown, the, the, the Civil War insurgent. 
Um, so you see uh, Eldridge Cleaver, a member of the Black Panthers. He wrote a book called The Soul on Ice. Mm. He talks a lot about how inspired he was by Sergei Nychev's Kashkism of the Revolution. So you see all of these cross-fertilization, all of this cross-fertilization taking place from different conflict to different conflict. And, and we're talking in the early 20th century when communications are not fantastic. I think it's Bhagat Singh who carries out a, a, an attack in, in uh, Delhi. He throws a bomb onto the, uh, the, the National Assembly floor. And it's a deliberate uh, attempt to echo an attack carried out by Auguste Valiant 20 or 30 years for, for, before on the floor of the uh, French National mm. Assembly. Um, you know, and he specifically says so. So, I mean, you, 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 you see group after group after group learning from the past. Um, you know, you'd be surprised to hear perhaps that the individual, the, 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 the human being quoted more than anybody else in Al-Qaeda manuals and training manuals is actually Chairman Mao. And his treatise on guerrilla warfare. That he actually gets quoted more than Mohammed or Saladin in the training manuals. You know, so that there's you know, and, and this is you know not that surprising, right? If you find yourself in a similar situation to someone else, you can learn from their experiences. Mm. And that's what terrorists do. Mm. Well, yeah, there's a wisdom in that. Yeah. Uh, there was a quote in your book about um I think it was a an Israeli uh soldier kind of was criticizing terrorists because they weren't they weren't anything like a, a professional soldier. And you make the point yeah. that they're trying to be professional terrorists. They don't want to be a soldier. That's Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah. Right, which is which is really interesting. And and there's a guy who was a professional soldier, right? I mean, mm. people don't realize about Benjamin Netanyahu, he was a special forces soldier who was actually wounded storming um a hijacked airline. Um, you know, so I mean, this is a guy who knows where his brother was killed in the raid on Entebbe. Um, he actually ran a, a, a foundation that studied terrorism for a while in the in the 1980s, called the Jonathan Institute, after his brother. Um, you know, that's a really interesting book. His one on, um, I think it's called Fighting Terrorism, if I remember correctly. But but I mean, he's I, I would say he's probably wrong just about every <laughs> single page. Um, but but you know, he's he's also somebody who's steeped in this subject and has a lot of firsthand experience. Uh, I just think he draws many of the wrong conclusions from it. But, and, and, and that quote I use because it's so emblematic of the misunderstanding. Right? Terrorists aren't trying to call asymmetrical warfare for a reason, right? They're not going to fight the same way that you do because you'd win. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like um, you know, uh, America and China. If America can put 13 aircraft carriers in the field, what's China going to do? It's going to come up with a really good missile for destroying aircraft carriers, right? Rather than build 14 aircraft carriers, right? Because that's, that's a, Classic asymmetrical response, mm. um, and so yeah, that that frustration that terrorists won't fight fair, you know, it's understandable, also kind of pointless because mm. they're they're never going to meet you on your terms, and when they try to, they invariably lose really quickly. You know, as ISIS just found out, you know, the, the last thing you want to do in irregular warfare is get fixed, you know, get caught in a fixed place in space and time. Because the other side is going to be able to bring more force to bear. The same thing happened to the Pakistani Taliban in the Swat Valley. Mm. As soon as they tried to hold a fixed position, you know, they lost. In fact, that was uh, one of the great lessons from the Easter uprising. Um, McBride, you know, one of the one of the, the, the leaders who was executed by the British after the Easter uprising, you know, he he that's one of his famous comments. You know, let this be our legacy: never fight again from a fixed position, because the other side got artillery. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, um, you looked at terrorist propaganda across sort of different groups at periods of time. Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of what you found uh, and learned from that kind of process? Because there were some commonalities you discovered, weren't there? Yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily call it propaganda. I would simply say terrorist literature, mm. because I, I don't think a lot of this literature was read to be consumed by other members of the organization. Yep. So it wasn't designed as propaganda. Yep. But terrorists write extensively about why they're doing what they're doing, justifying what they're doing, but mm. also, you know, describing to their colleagues and, and, and their peers, you know, how to effectively implement the tactics that they are embracing. And what I found, and I, I went out went out to try and read as much as I could written by, you know, across about 150 years and, and by terrorist organizations across, you know, really across the globe, as much as I could that I could find where terrorists were talking about what it is that they were actually trying to achieve. Um, and I basically came to the conclusion that there was a pretty clear, evolved and distinct terrorist doctrine, and it consisted of basically six core themes. You know, one of those themes is asymmetry. We're going to fight asymmetrically. So you know, terrorists understand that, that asymmetry doesn't just come in military terms, but also in financial. And, and to mm. illustrate that point, um, in 2011, Admiral Dennis Blair, who was the director of national intelligence, first under George W. Bush and then under Obama, um, he was speaking at the Aspen Security Forum. And, and he said that the United States had spent about $80 billion a year on counterterrorist programs. Wow. This did not exclude the expenditures in Iraq and Afghanistan. At the time, most academic and international observers would have estimated the strength of al-Qaeda and its affiliates to be around three to 5,000 men. So that meant that the United States was spending somewhere between $60 million and $27 million per year on each potential al-Qaeda terrorist. I mean, just let that sink in for a second, right? Yeah. And again, think also, remember that quote from the Shinback guy, if I knew that was what he was going to do, I would have bought him an airline ticket and given him a million dollars. Right? I mean, you know, by any measure, there is a finite amount of money that you have that you can spend on this. And we spend money like it's going out of fashion. Um, And other people have noticed this. There's some Chinese uh, military doctrine that's been emerging. Um, it got a lot of uh, attention recently, and there's this great phrase in it about how American planes, you know, the latest American Air Force planes, like the um, the Joint Strike Fighter, you know, they're they're flying gold bricks. Um, you know, they cost so much to put in the air. You you know, you're, it's so expensive, and the ordnance they use is so expensive. You know, what you're basically doing is you're you know you're you're dropping a Cadillac to destroy a you know a, a donkey cart every single time. And no matter how rich you are, sooner or later, that's going to hurt. That's going to pinch the wallet. Um, and so, you know, asymmetry comes in lots of different forms. Um, you have to think of it in the round. You have to think of it creatively. Um, other, other sort of key points of doctrine, the concept of attrition, which is obviously closely allied to asymmetry. You know, the, the, the idea that it's going to be a long conflict. There's this great Taliban comment, you have the watches, we have the time. Right? It's very hard to stay committed to a fight um, for 20 or 30 years, unless that fight is ultimately on some level existential. Um, otherwise, it just becomes mm. a bad policy choice after a while. Um, you know, unless you live there and you don't want to leave living there, why would you carry on to fight? Um, and so, you know, whether it's um, Nikolai Morozov, who was a, an early thinker in Norodna Volya, another uh, populist Russian terrorist organization of the 19th century, whether it's Michael Collins, whether it's Jerry Adams, uh, or, or Hezbollah or, or Osama bin Laden, you know, they all talk about this concept of long war. Um, you know, we're in this for, this is a generational conflict. Um, you know, uh, when you're 
particularly fighting democratic governments that are going to turn over, you know, more often than not every four or five years, that's a huge advantage. Because, you know, new policy leaders are going to come in. Like Trump, one thing that, that, that Trump did that, that you can't really argue about and still attracts a lot of support from his followers is he didn't start any new wars. Mm. Um, you know, which, which, uh, you know, tried to start one argument in Iran, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, yeah. it didn't turn out that way. And that actually saves a ton of money and it saves a ton of lives. Mm. Um, and so, you know, this long war doctrine is we, we stay in the fight long enough. Somebody else is going to come along who wants to get out on the other side mm. Mm. and we can do a deal. Mm. Um, another very important concept is propaganda by deed. Um, that's a phrase that was first coined by, by the anarchist movement in the 19th century. Where you see it replayed and replayed and replayed more modern in, in by you know, more modern uh, iterations of, of terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm. um, the Marxist uh, wave uh, of terrorists that, that uh, is referenced by uh, Rappaport in the, the 60s and 70s often talks about armed propaganda, same kind of concept. Um, Jerry Adams has talked about armed propaganda, in fact. Um, Bin Laden, uh, Andreas Brevik, you know, all of these people, you know, they understand that the medium is the message and by carrying out terrorist attacks. They are, in fact, communicating their ideas. Andreas Brevik actually referred to the toilets. This is the, the Norwegian uh, white supremacist who, yes. who exploded a bomb in, in, in Oslo and then attacked and murdered a bunch of, of you know, young uh, socialist um, political activists on an island called Utoya. You know, he actually described that attack as his book launch because he had this manifesto. <laughs> oh yeah. um, you know, he actually described it as, that was my book launch. I mean, that's what puts me on the map. Now you'll read my book. Um, so that's a very important point. You know, terrorism is a continuation, just like war, of politics by other means. Mm. And it's a dialogue of a sort. Um, and so you have to pay attention to the targets that are chosen. It is, it's inherently theatrical. Yeah, the Unabomber comes to mind, yeah. actually, with that. Uh, they're, they're a perfect example. Here's a guy who said, I'll stop doing it if you print my manifesto in the New York Times, which, of course, they didn't. That's how they caught it. But a very interesting, you know, debate. From a philosophical measure, do you want to have? Do you want to have something like that out there? Now, I've read the Unabomber's manifesto, and let me tell you, it's not an easy read. Mm. So, the likelihood it was going to inspire anybody to follow him was pretty remote. Um, but you could easily see somebody else asking for the same thing, and you wouldn't necessarily. I mean, we just take them, or, or Twitter has just kicked Donald Trump off, the, off their platform because they're worried about the destabilizing yeah. impact of his words. Yeah. You know, you can very quickly see how actually. You know, using violence to communicate a message can become, and vice versa, can become a very powerful tool. Um, then another really important concept is what, what uh, actually Sergei Nechev called the revolutionary prototype, or what we might call one charismatic leadership. And we might also encompass sort of concepts of martyrdom and, and martyrology, this idea of creating sort of ideal individuals, um, you know, who've sacrificed for their people. Um, examples of that might be someone like Osoga um, Naichayev himself, um, who was very consciously self-curated, um, faked various um, events to make himself look more important and successful than he actually was. For example, he actually claimed to have um, uh, escaped from the St. Petersburg's notorious um, Peter and Paul Fortress, um, which he didn't. Uh, but what he did do was he rode around St. Petersburg with a note tied around a stone in a carriage. Um, when he saw some students, he was a student, but he recognized, he threw the note out of the window. And basically it said, you know, help, I've been arrested, I'm being taken to the Peter and Paul Fortress. Then he laid low for four days and then made his reemergence. Hello, I've escaped. You know, look at me, I'm a, the first person ever to escape. I'm a revolutionary hero. Um, you know, th this is not an uncommon concept. 
And when we look at people like, you know, probably the, 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 the best example of a revolutionary prototype would be someone like Che Guevara, you know, a fantastic brand and, 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 and sort of um, PR management. Another one would be uh, Yasser Arafat, for example. I mean, here was a guy who curated his whole look down to the uniform he wore and the way he wore his kefir tied in the mm, shape of mm, Palestine. Mm. Um, you know, he, he really understood the theater of it. Um, you know, Bin Laden was somebody who really understood, you know, the aestheticism of the lifestyle he was leading. You know, every piece of clothing he wore from the Pakhole hat that told you about his Afghanistan experience, the combat jacket that told you he was a fighter, the white clothes underneath, which echoes the idea of concept of martyrdom, even the gun he carried, an AK-74, not, not a 47, the 74, the, the um, uh, airborne variant, um, was to remind you that he'd been in a battle against the Spetsnaz, the Russian special forces. You know, all of this was done deliberately to show you, you know, show him in a particular light. Um, and it's interesting to note that Ayman al-Zawahiri, you know, he also presents himself a little differently. You know, he'll often appear with lots of books behind him to try and give weight to his religious leadership. Um, you know, so that this, this concept of how you present and how you, um, describe and appear on the, the sort of the international political stage really, really important. Said Qutub, the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, leader, um, he was, uh, executed by, by Gamal Nasser. Um, towards the end, Nasser realized that this was going to be actually, might not have been Nasser, might have been Sadat, not quite sure, but it was executed by the Egyptian government. Yeah. Uh, and just before his execution took place, the Egyptian government, the president at the time, realized that this could be a mistake. So they actually offered to commute a sentence and they sent his sister to try and talk him into, um, you know, accepting uh, a pardon or a commutation of a sentence. And he refused wow. because he understood that his execution would magnify his impact, mm. magnify his words. Um, you know, it's an incredible, you know, gesture of will. So that's, so we've got four themes so far. We've had asymmetrical warfare, attrition, propaganda by deed, concept of a revolutionary prototype. And then we come to the two most important, mm. um, I think at least. One is the, the, the issue of contesting legitimacy. Yeah. Right. I mean, terrorism doesn't fall out of a clear blue sky. It exists for a reason. And terrorists have causes for a reason. And sometimes they may have strong arguments on their side, mm. legitimizing why they fight. You know, if you are an Irish Catholic in Northern Ireland in you know, the late 1960s, the IRA has got a pretty strong legitimizing narrative about how the Protestant community has alienated and excluded you from government, that the democratic change is impossible because of the way the, the, uh, the, the political constituencies are arranged in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, you're excluded from uh, good housing. You're excluded from uh, employment opportunities. Your schools aren't as good. Right? That's a really powerful legitimizing narrative. Mm. Um, the same if you're fighting against a colonial occupier. Right? I mean, it's, it's really, really powerful. And if you look at, again, terrorist leaders from you know, Menachem Begin, uh, Ben Mahidi in, in, in Algeria, Nelson Mandela, terrorism label is a difficult one with him, but he was ultimately convicted of leading Spear of the Nation, which was effectively a terrorist organization, although Mandela's views on violence were actually a lot more complex than that, um, you know, much more sophisticated, but, but he was ultimately convicted of that. Um, Franz Fanon, Yasser Arafat, the Bader Meinhof group, particularly Ulrike Meinhof, um, you know, or Ayman al-Zawahiri, they all talk about the importance of keeping you know, their constituents on side. You know, there's that famous letter written from Ayman al-Zawahiri to Abu Musab al-Zakawi during the height of the AQI insurgency in Iraq in, I think it was 2005, 2004, 2005, um, you know, where he's telling him, you know, you've got to back off. You're killing way too many innocent people. You are alienating, the, you know, our supporters. 
you know, you have to, I think the phrase is, you, know, you have to keep the, 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 the Mujahideen, the pop, you have to keep the people on side. Um, and we know that Bin Laden uh, in Abbottabad, from some of the documents that were recovered from the SEAL raid there, um, you know, he was really concerned with this issue that mm. Al-Qaeda violence had started to alienate popular support. So terrorists are very focused on that. They operate, there's this great phrase from a, a member of the IRA who was ultimately killed, Eamon Collins, who was an IRA intelligence officer, who wrote a book called Killing Rage. Um, and he talks about how the IRA operates within a very strict set of informal parameters, all the more powerful for being left unspoken. You know, that their community will turn on them if they go too far. And a, a classic example of that happening in, in the context of the Northern Ireland conflict would be the Warrington bombing. That, that, that killed um, Tim Parry and Jonathan Ball. It's a huge backlash against the IRA after that. Um, likewise, the Enniskillen bombing. So, you know, you, you, this concept of legitimacy is really important. And it can be, you know, a, a huge asset for a terrorist organization, but it can yeah. also be a huge point of vulnerability as well. Yeah. Um, and that's why you have that sixth and final core theme of terrorist doctrine, which is provoking an overreaction. You know, terrorists want to make the state look illegitimate. They want to take legitimacy away from the state, take it back for themselves. Um, there's a great description of this political jujitsu, right? You want to take the, sta the state's strength and use it against the state, put it to work against you. You know, so when the state's going around door to door searching houses, right, what impact is that having on the community? Right? It's alienating the community, particularly if they're yelling at them in a language they don't understand and they're, you know, they're, they're not behaving in a culturally appropriate way towards, you know, the women in the house, the children. You know, I mean, that, that sort of thing is, you know, you, you, you carry out a, a sniping attack from a small village, and then the next day, 300 soldiers turn up and kick every door in. You know, what do you think the upshot of that is? And terrorists have been talking about that forever. You know, Nightshire, Bambella, Prudhoe, Marigella. There's a guy called um, Frederico Kirkwig, who's a, a, a theorist behind Basque nationalism. Um, and he, he came up with this concept that he called the, uh, the action repression action thesis. Right, which is a very explicit idea. You know, we will carry out an action, they will repress, we'll carry out an action, they will repress further. Fatter called it consecutive detonation. Same concept. Um, you know, you'll find it hardwired into right up until ISIS and Dabiq, and they talk about the elimination of the gray zone. You know, let's let's polarize society. We want to get rid of they call it grayish, grayish cells, grayish opinions. We don't want middle ground. We don't want people who are ambivalent. We want people in one yeah. camp or the other. The, the camp of the unbeliever or the, uh, the, the, the disbelievers, the infidels. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think that that particular whole point provoking overreaction is such a, an important one. As an outsider looking in on counterterrorism for the last 20 years, I think we did overreact. We, we always overreact. I mean, mm. there's, there's an academic called Louise Richardson, who I, I believe is now the Chancellor of Oxford or Cambridge, but she wrote, she's a terrorism expert. She wrote a, a very good book called What Terrorists Want. And, and in fact, one of the inspirations for this book was a, just one simple sentence from her book where she talks about a state pathology of overreaction. And it's literally one sentence where she says, I can't think of a single state that didn't overreact when faced with a terrorist threat for the first time. Um, and that was one of my sort of main goals when I set out to write this book was to find out if that was right and whether I could find an example of a, of a democratic state that didn't overreact when facing terrorism. And there are one or two you might be able to make the argument about today. Norway is the one that springs to mind after Brevik. Um, but again, that's, that's a one-off incident that hasn't been repeated, that came out of a blue sky, didn't seem to require 
you know, unlike, for example, the the, the storming of uh, the Senate, which which mm. is sort of exposed an underbelly of right wing extremism in the United States that, that's perhaps far more extensive than anybody realized. You know, the Brevik case didn't expose that in Norway. I mean, it, it was a very isolated incident. He seemed to be an outlier. They didn't see. I mean, he claimed to be part of a, a bigger organization he called the Knights Templars, which didn't seem to exist. You know, so Norway didn't really need to react, um, particularly to what had happened. And, and so they reacted really well, um, at least initially. The, the, the government of the day acted very, very well. But that aside, I can't think of a single government that hasn't, you know, because democratic governments are under a lot of pressure after something like this happens to do something to make their public safer. Um, and so you get a lot of performative policy. Um, you know, we, we, we often call it th- security theater. You know, yeah. the parking of a, you know, a warrior armored personnel carrier outside Heathrow Airport. I mean, it serves no useful purpose whatsoever. Um, but it looks good. And, and, you know, if you would go to New York, you'll see National Guardsmen, you know, carrying M16s work, walking through Grand Central Station. But if they actually fired that gun, which is designed to put a projectile through three or four people, you know, they probably cause more carnage than they'd stop. But again, it reassures people to see that. So you, know, you start to realize that this is actually quite a difficult threat for a democratic government to navigate. Because if they just said, look, guys, keep calm and carry on, it's no big deal, they'd be out on their ear pretty quickly. Um, and there's a great example of that during the, um, the, the George W. Bush's uh, re-election campaign, where John Kerry uh, actually said, look, we've got this all wrong. You know, terrorism isn't a, a, it's not a war. It's a police threat. It's a law enforcement threat. We need to use prosecutors. Um, he had to retract that by the end of the day. He had to walk that back. And it was probably the most sensible thing that was said about terrorism during the entire electoral campaign. But the public wasn't ready to hear it. And you can, there's this great phrase, I'm not a, not a big one for quoting Anne Ram, but, but the Fountainhead has this great phrase about newspapers. Um, and it's that a newspaper leads the public on a leash, but you have to remember that a leash is simply a rope with a noose at both ends. Mm. I, you can only lead the public where they want to go. Otherwise, you start strangling each other. Um, and, and that's the situation that policymakers are in after a terrorist attack. Right? They, they have to listen to their public or they could suffer, you know, catastrophic political consequences from not doing so. And that, that puts them in a very difficult position. You know, I would argue good leadership could help you navigate that. But, yeah. And that, that leadership has been lacking. But, you know, in all fairness, it is a very difficult challenge for, to, to face. Mm. Well, one thing that crosses my mind, I'm, I'm not a legal expert whatsoever, um, but the um, the so-called military tribunals at Guantanamo Bay, so you've got Khalid mm-hmm. Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged mastermind of 9-11. Theoretically, because of all the abuses he's faced, surely a good lawyer could get him off 9-11. You know, I think they probably couldn't because he has confessed on uh, on tape. <laughs> okay. he's, not, he's not hidden it. And in fact, no. I can tell you on the opening day, I was actually there for the opening day of the 9-11 trial. Um, and, you know, he, he was enjoying every moment of it. And mm. um, first thing he did was make them, re- he stopped proceedings so his lawyer could insist that the charges were read out in Arabic. Oh, okay. Uh, which they then did while he sat there and read The Economist, which is not the easiest English magazine to read. And then one of the others, and I can't remember which of the five defendants his was, mm. actually during the opening statement, picked up a piece of paper, folded it into a paper airplane, put the paper airplane on the microphone stand, and then turned to look at the families, because there was a small number of families that had been invited by the Pentagon to witness it in the public gallery and smiled at them. Oh, my God. So, mm. you know, I, I, there, there's 
I, whether he would actually um, beat the rap, I doubt, frankly. I think there's plenty of evidence that he was responsible. And, you know, yeah. he, he was also, you know, involved in the, the first World Trade Center bombing because Ramzi Yusuf is his nephew. And then in an incident in, uh, uh, ooh, was it Malaysia um, or the Philippines, uh, the, the Pachinka plot? You know, I, I don't think they'd have any difficulty convicting him. They're not mm. going to be a da- able to use a damn thing that they got after they arrested him. No. That's absolutely true. I mean, all of that would be dismissed. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, this is why, in a way, it should be treated like a law enforcement issue with the absolutely. idea of rule of law. There have been 700 successful cases heard in American courts to do with terrorism since 9-11, like normal American, U.S. Mm. federal courts. Mm. Um, they have only had seven, I think. Is it five or seven convictions? All but one have been overturned. Um, and they were all obtained by people doing a plea deal. Because the, you know, the dirty little secret of Guantanamo is the only way off the island is a plea deal, right? It doesn't matter if you're innocent or guilty or whether you win your case or not. You're not being held in Guantanamo because of the criminal charge. You're being held in Guantanamo because you're a prisoner of war. And the determination of whether or not you're a combatant is a very different thing from what the court is determining when you're tried for committing a war crime, which is what the military commission's for. So even if you're found innocent, the court could turn around and say, okay, well, you're not a war criminal, but you're still a combatant, so we're going to keep you, right? So if you want to get off the island, you take the deal. And that's what happened in the El Mercado case. You know, he took the deal because he knew he would get him out and he'd go back to Canada. Mm. So no, I mean, the, the, the Guantanamo has been a colossal waste of money. It has resulted in people who could have been relatively easily convicted in an ordinary court, having 20 years now almost. Um, of ridiculous legal shenanigans. Um, you know, the USS Cole families. I mean, that, that was 1999, for God's sake. Right? And, you know, it's not a hard case. And we're still arguing about it. That still hasn't happened. Um, and 9-11 as well. You know, that, this is going to be the 20th year since 9-11. These aren't hard cases. If they just brought them, you didn't need intelligence to convict someone like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. You know, there were probably low-level players that were caught, that have been picked up at some point in the last 20 years, that it would have been hard to make. And in yeah. fact, I mean, we know that there's about 30 people in Guantanamo um, that the government admits that they, they only have intelligence against and who they will not charge and will not release because of the intelligence case against them, but they admit they can't bring them to court. Um, but I mean, there's 30 people. Is it worth, you know, destroying your international credibility, which is really important because that's why states choose to you know, cooperate with you, share intelligence with you, go to war with you, right? Is it worth destroying all that goodwill and international credibility for 30 cases? Huh? The, 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 the people who support it will say, yeah, well, you, don't, you haven't seen the intelligence. But that story's got real thin. You know, all the people who said we got great intelligence from torture, there's no evidence of that at all. They've never been able to, you know, the, the people who defended torture, people who I respect, you know, very smart people like General Hayden, for example, uh, Mike Morrell. Um, you know, they, they, they continue to defend the use of torture, but they've not yet once been able to give us an example of where it made a real difference. And bear in mind that, that, that intelligence, if it existed, would be 15 years old now. So there's really no reason why you couldn't share it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I find it exasperating to be honest. Well, yeah. Yeah. Like you were saying earlier about the Pakistani, um, officer you were talking to, the cost is just too high. Even if it did yield it's intelligence, high. it's, yeah, no, it's too high. It's that high great French phrase, right? It's worse than a crime. It's a blunder. You know, I mean, it, it serves no useful purpose. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it, and it's very hard to fix as, as President Obama found out. I mean, that's the thing with a lot of the stuff that we do in the security world is you own it forever, right? You know, you build a wall, you take, you tell people to take their shoes off at the airport, 
who's going to be the person that takes political responsibility for saying, you know, we don't need to do this anymore? Only to have three days later, you know, the first shoe attack yeah, in, in, yeah. in 30 years, right? So, so nobody, so people are so risk adverse that once you put something in place, it's very hard to get rid of it. Look at the ring of steel around the city of London. I mean, it took years for that. It incrementally, it kind of faded away over time, but nobody ever said we don't need it anymore. It just became less policed and then there were no police. But I, I haven't been back to London for a couple of years, but uh, last time I was there, you could still see some of the uh, street furniture that had been put in place because of the Ring of Steel. I, and the, you know, that, that, that ended in 1998. Mm. Well, yeah, now we have sort of fortified pavements because of like the London Bridge attack and things like that. Yes, yes, that's right. That's a new thing now. Yeah. Mm, that's sort of becoming kind of fashionable. And um, and all and all that happens is, you know, again, in, in counterterrorism, there's a concept called threat cascade, mm. right? Which is the idea that the threat just moves, right? There, there's a practically infinite number of targets. So, you know, you, you protect bridges, which, you know, arguably it's a choke point. It's quite a good place to attack. But there are mm. plenty of other choke points around the, the city. And, you know, and if you don't do that, then you go after cafes or you go after mm. sporting venues. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, I... I went to see uh, uh, Tottenham play Barcelona a couple of years ago, and I stood in a huge crowd outside Wembley, Wembley Stadium for two hours. You know, no policing, I mean, an incredibly soft target. So, I mean, there's nothing you can really do to prevent, you know, or make every single member of the public safe at every single event, at every single venue, on every single form of transport. Um, you know, it, it's just impossible. And if you try, you end up spending that huge sum of money that Dennis Blair was uh, referencing. You know, in, in the quote that we gave earlier, I mean, it, it is really expensive. And, you know, we, we have a finite amount of money. I mean, we could have given every American healthcare for the amount of money we spent on Iraq and Afghanistan mm. for the rest of their lives. Mm. Free healthcare. For that, you know? Yeah. And ultimately, one of the things I remember from one of, one of bin Laden's many speeches, didn't he want to bleed America dry? Yes, he did. Very explicitly. And he talks exactly mm. about that. And, and so we're here he has as well. You mm. know, and, and if you're, you know, it's quite hard to draw, you know, a direct parallel between the financial collapse and, mm. you know, the, 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 the war on terror that we went through in the early 2000s. Mm. But it's really easy to draw that comparison if you're just pumping out propaganda, right? You know, you mm. just, you just uh, as, as we've seen again with the Trump administration, you just assert that there's a connection and your followers will believe it. Mm. So, you know, again, it's, it's been really easy for them to say, look, it's working. You know, we're having the impact that we said mm. we were going to have, even if cause and effect doesn't necessarily marry up. And, Proximity is not causation. Not that many people are bothering to look that closely anymore you know, in the polarised world we live in. Mm. So, Tom, everything we discussed today, so I suppose the, the billion-dollar question, literally, is um, how can governments fight terrorism whilst working within a human rights framework? Well, I think the first thing to say, and it's, it's a really important mm. point, is it's not really a choice between an effective response and working within a human rights framework. You know, the argument of my book, and I think the argument of most Western experience over the last 40 years, is that you do it more effectively when you work within that mm. framework. And you know, the point that needs to be made before we go any further is you can do an awful lot as an investigator, as a security entity, within that human rights framework. There's a lot of latitude. So international human rights law will allow you to um, use, I don't know, uh, um, electronic and physical surveillance, mobile surveillance. Source recruitment, disruptions, covert operations, beacons. You know, you, you can interview people, you can detain people administratively, you can prosecute them. Right? There's a whole range. You can use force in certain mm. circumstances. Right? You know, th there's a wide range of tools that the intelligence and, and policing agencies 
views that they can use entirely lawfully within a human rights framework. For the most part, investigative resources are really only limited by the requirement that they are defined in law, that due process is observed in the way that they're used, and that they're used in a manner that is reasonable, necessary, and proportionate to the threat faced. And that's not that hard a bar to meet. Right. I mean, that's not that heavy a restriction. Um, and in fact, for most intelligence and police agencies, they're already under a huge amount of resource pressure. So they want to use those what we call special investigation techniques, those you know, really expensive tools like mobile surveillance. They want to use it incredibly sparingly because they don't have a lot of it. Um, you know, there, there's this great phrase from Eliza Manning and Buller in the uh, parliamentary inquiry after the London transport bombings, the former director general of MI5, where she said, you know, we are faced every day with acute challenges of prioritization, Mm. right? Um, You know, if you've got several thousand persons of interest that you're trying to keep tabs on, and you're running an organization with three or 4,000 staff, right, you can immediately see the challenges. Um, You know, the the surveillance capability that that, um, the British policing and, and security organizations have at any one time to put a full surveillance team behind a target, um, you know, it's a very finite number of targets that you can follow. Um, and if you look at you know, that publicly available information about the run-up to the 7-7 attacks, they had somebody under surveillance that met with that mm. team, right? So they were really mm. close. They noticed two of the, the perpetrators of the 7-7 attacks in the course of their surveillance operation. They were able to detach surveillance officers who were able to house both of those people. Where things broke down is that they weren't able to prioritize those individuals who at the point in their investigation would simply have been persons of interest. We may not know the significance of the meeting. They're just like, you know, young man meeting with this guy, it may be suspicious. We should look into that, right? They didn't get around to really running that lead down to earth in time. But you know, the, the tools that they had were employed and they were employed correctly. You know, what they had was, you know, a resource challenge more than anything else. I can't think of my time of working as an investigator of any time that a human rights consideration prevented me from basically conducting a successful investigation, right? I mean, almost any of the challenges that you might face staying within the, the law can be solved by thinking creatively. And I don't mean by stretching the law. I'm thinking about different ways to solve the problem that you can't solve the way you initially wanted to, right? Um, and that that's all it requires. There are very few cases where you can look at, um, I can't think, I'll, I'll be absolutely honest with you, I cannot think, and I did not find one where I was writing the book, and I am not aware either from my professional life of any case where a terrorist attack happened because of a human rights consideration had prevented the state taking effective action to prevent it. Simple as that. Meanwhile, what it will stop you from doing is hassling members of a community, discriminating against people, um, torturing people, beating people up. You know, I mean, it, it stops you from making all of those mistakes that the terrorist organizations want you to mistake, want you to make so that they can attract more supporters to their cause. We know from social science and from interviews and studies conducted on why people join terrorist organizations that the number one um, experience that correlates with joining a terrorist organization is the experience of personally a human rights abuse, either witnessing it or experiencing it yourself mm. or a family member experiencing mm. it. 
That might be as somebody being injured, being killed, being stopped at a roadblock, being hassled, having your house searched. Might be something like that, or it might be something much more serious, like you know, a relative being killed in a drone strike. Um, but we know that most people who join terrorist organizations, about 50%, I think, from the, um, uh, the, the studies that have been done so far, about 50% of the people join because of they have experienced or witnessed a major human rights abuse. Um, they wouldn't necessarily use the language human rights abuse, but they, they've seen some, some abuse of an individual by an agent of the state, let's put it that way. Um, there's, there's a famous quote from Baitullah Masood, who was one of the leaders of the Tariqi, the Pakistan, the, the Pakistani ta- Taliban. You know, every drone strike brings me three or four new suicide bombers. Um, Des Long, who was a founder member of the provisional IRA, every fellow who gets his head cracked open by a policeman's bat and there's a potential recruit, right? You know, terrorists understand this concept, uh, that, that if they can get state actors to crack down on the wider population, it will drive recruits to their door. Um, and that is, that's something that terrorist organizations have consistently understood for 150 years which is why it is one of the central pillars of terrorist doctrine. Um, and human rights and following and staying within a human rights framework, it prevents you from making the kind of mistakes that terrorists want you to make. There's a, there's a famous quote from an Israeli Supreme Court justice where he says, you know, the, the, it, it, it's an interesting quote. He's talking about the importance of observing human rights. And, and um, he actually says something along the lines of, well, you know, it, Yes, observing human rights may mean that the state has to fight with one hand tied behind its back, but that's the price we pay for, for being a state and for being legitimate mm. and for doing the right thing. Mm. And, and, you know, he was very, it's, this is, um, this is Aaron Barak, if I remember rightly. Um, you know, he, he was very much lauded for this statement at the time. It was a very powerful statement by a Supreme Court justice in Israel in a context where the Israelis were, you know, rightly being criticized for some of the techniques and tactics they were using. And it was a very powerful statement, but I also think it's wrong. Because the reality is what, to, to use his metaphor of fighting with one hand tied behind your back, that's not what's happening at all. What human rights law is basically doing is training you to fight better. It's actually teaching you how to land your punches effectively, when to hit and when not to hit, when to hit with strength, when to withhold. It's a little bit more like, if you like, sort of Muhammad Ali's rope-a-dope. You know, you, you know, the effective counterterrorism policy, you act with restraint, and when you strike, you strike hard effectively. And human rights helps you do that really very well. It actually frees you up and gives you the training to fight more effectively instead of swinging wildly mm. and leaving yourself open to counterattacks. Um, and that's a better metaphor. Mm. You know, I know there's something, <laughs> it's terrible to say this, I know sometimes there's something cathartic from a member of public point of view to see something blow up in response to something like oh, when sure. uh, Trump dropped the Moab I think in his first year of office which is like the biggest conventional bomb known to mankind I believe I'm sure some people found that quite cathartic and thought that strong leadership but it didn't really I don't I'm not aware of what it actually achieved well I'll, I'll tell you two stories about mm. that the first is look I completely understand the anger and the need for catharsis I, I've actually been blown up twice in my life oh, cranky. okay um, and when I was when I was 21 I was at a party that was blown up by the IRA in central London at yeah. the honorable artillery company uh, which is the main reason why I joined the security service yeah um, and I, I remember the incredible anger I felt for about a year afterwards it dissipated but I was an angry person for about a year after that um, and you know so I, I understand that visceral need to strike back. I, I completely do. But of course, that's precisely the reaction that terrorists are hoping for. That's what they're hoping to provoke. Um, the second thing I would say is that strength does not always, or 
acts of performative strength do not always communicate themselves to people on the receiving end as acts of, as strong acts. So I'll give you an example from, from Iraq when I was there in 2003. When we started getting mortared on a regular basis in the green zone, we were getting hit, you know, usually sort of three missiles every other day. And they'd usually come in between six and eight in the evening. And they, they kind of went everywhere. They were actually air-to-air missiles that were being fired off a trellis, wooden trellis. So basically, they'd put up this little wooden trellis, and then they'd prop up three rockets. And then they would fire the rockets. And frankly, the rockets would go just about anywhere. So I mean, some would miss the green zone by literally miles. Um, but you would, you would at least have the alerts and the, you know, every now and again, they'd, they'd actually fit quite close to the palace. Um, so the U.S. decided to, to, to strike back and demonstrate strength. And, you know, with, with all the typical subtlety that the U.S. <laughs> is known for, they decided to call it Operation Iron Hammer. Um, and so what they decided to do yeah. was to park a Spectre gunship, have a Spectre gunship on station mm. just outside of Baghdad. And a Spectre gunship is a, basically a Hercules, mm. which has a lot of weaponry down one side of it. It's a special forces sort of mobile gun platform. Um, and so it was circling Baghdad in the darkness, waiting for a mortar strike to come in. And then the idea was it would fly to the firing point and just destroy the firing point. And so this is all very exciting. Everybody knew it was happening beforehand. So as soon as the, 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 the attack came in, we all went up onto the roof to watch. <laughs> and this thing lumbered in over Baghdad like a Lancaster, you know, yeah. like a World War II movie. Yeah. And it put on a, you know, a very short but pretty impressive display of sort of you know, firing at this this point and then flew off. You know, everybody in the green zone was, you know, sort of cheering and whooping and yeah, yeah, we really showed them. Um, and the next day I went into the office and I, I went up to, I was talking to one of our Intaki, Iraqi interpreters and I said to him, I said, what did you, uh, what did you make of this last night? I said, ah, all the Americans did last night was show they were too scared to go in on the ground. <laughs> and it was so interesting that yeah. totally different messages have been mm. communicated. Mm. You know, this was somebody who wasn't hostile to the Americans or he was working for them. But I mean, it just, it, it hadn't impressed anybody in Iraq. I mean, these people have been bombed from the air by, you know, but, you know, first by the Iranians and then by the Americans, the best part of 30 years. It was like, huh, didn't matter at all. And they understood that, you know, control is control on the ground, not control from, you know, 10,000 feet. Um, and it was really interesting because, you know, you, you think you've communicated a strong message. What you've actually communicated is weakness. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, sometimes these sort of very performative acts are self-defeating. Sometimes they actually make the situation worse. There's very few occasions when they give the other side pause. And it, you know, it was based on this flawed assumption, right? That, you know, somehow, you know, we're braver than they are, right? You know, we talk a lot about the blitz spirit yeah. during the Second World War in London and how, you know, London took it. The Germans had the same. The German will to fight didn't collapse because of the Dresden firebombing or you know, the bombing of Cologne or Hamburg or Berlin. I mean, they endured it just like we did. So did the Russians in Stalingrad and Leningrad. You know, at which point is this incredible demonstration of power and force actually going to work? Because I can't think of many examples in history where it actually did. What it tends to do is strengthen, resolve, and fight. So again, you know, so, so a lot of this sort of lizard brain thinking is really deeply flawed. Because yes, it's satisfying, but take a step back and think about it strategically. And you realize that what you're really doing is, is dealing with sort of cartoon tropes, not reality. And the reality is that most people on the receiving end of force resent it and look for ways to punch back. Mm. They don't sort of disappear off into the corner to lick their wounds. That mm. has not been our life experience. Mm. Mm, that makes sense. Just just before we do wrap up, I did want to kind of get your thoughts and some kind of current things that have been going on. Yeah. We've 
briefly mentioned it earlier, but in the debate today at the moment, we've got the, the growing kind of threat from the far right and uh, QAnon-inspired domestic terrorism or the terrorist threat. And um, I was just wondering, you know, if you were in a position to outline a response to this sort of growing far right domestic threat in the States, what would you recommend? Well, despite the accent, I live in the States, so this is, <laughs> and I'm an American citizen, so this is something that uh, you know, weighs on my mind mm. quite heavily. And I live in the South, in North mm. Carolina. So, you know, this is, this is a part of the country where, um, you know, there, there are a lot of, uh, I think we could call them radicalized Trump supporters. The short answer is this is no easier a challenge to, to, to respond to than any other of its type. And the, 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 the incredibly hard challenge you have is how do you deal with the violent hardcore without making the situation worse? Um, the first thing you need to know is to do is to understand the problem better. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's the cry of every intelligence officer always. But, you know, you don't, you don't waste any time that is spent studying the threat. Um, part yeah. of the problem in the United States has been, you know, Repu the Republican Party has blocked attempts, particularly by the FBI, to investigate the threat of right-wing extremism in the United States pretty effectively. Um, so we don't understand the threat very well. So I think that's the first problem. So, you know, we need to do, because there's a lot of different groups involved, right? So, so if you look at the, the, the storming of, uh, of, um, the Senate, you know, you've got Proud Boys, you've got Boogaloo, you've got, you know, just QAnon conspiracy theorists, you've got ordinary Trump supporters, you've got people who would simply say that they identify as patriots, you've got passers by, you've got Proud Boys, you, you know, you've got a whole range of people who got caught up in this and a very small minority of them probably pose a real lasting security threat going forward. Um, a lot of the current threat could probably be eliminated simply by leaders of the Republican Party standing up and saying, look, we've looked long and hard at the election results and there's no evidence of widespread fraud. That is not true. Um, and pointing the finger at Donald Trump and say, look, he's lying. He lied about election fraud when he was in the runoffs to get the presidential nomination. He lied about it against Hillary Clinton, and now he's lying about it. It's his thing. That could take a lot of heat out of this. But there are, and have always been, or at least for the last 30 or 40 years in the United States, you know, far-right actors who are very dangerous. You know, one thinks of the Oklahoma City bombing, but actually since September 11th, if you take the death toll from September 11th out of the equation, Right-wing extremists have killed more people in the United States than Islamist extremists. Pretty close. So it's it's about sort of the death tolls are about the same on both sides. But but at the moment, right-wing extremists are a little bit further ahead. Mm. And in terms of number of incidents, they're substantially ahead. Um, the death tolls have just tended to be rather smaller. And there are a couple of big incidents that are hard to place, like the Pulse nightclub shooting and the Las Vegas shooting. For example, we don't really know what the motivation, the real motivation of the two killers in those cases were. Um, but, but broadly speaking, it's been a serious threat for the last 20 years, but it was also a pretty serious threat for the 20 years before that. And, you know, and then you also always in the South have had the Ku Klux Klan, different iterations of it, um, that were very violent, you know, in, in, in the 1960s, you know, they bombed churches in Birmingham, Alabama, killed kids. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's always been that violent strain of right-wing extremism in the United States as well. Um, there's a lot of, um, sort of intellectual, uh, heavy lifting done by American right-wing extremists. There's a guy called Louis Beam who pioneered the concept of 
leaderless resistance and the use of the internet as a, as a medium for that leaderless resistance. Uh, it goes back to the 1980s and the Reagan era. Um, so this, the, 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 the roots go deep in the soil here. And at the moment, there's an awful lot of chaff, a lot of, uh, a lot of activity that will be obscuring the real danger, the real threat, the real players. Um, and I think the first step is, you know, effective intelligence gathering and investigation. Um, the next thing is you have to be very clear about what you're going to do and you have to do it, which means holding people to account. Um, so when people commit criminal offenses, they're prosecuted and convicted of them. I think that's really important. I think when you have, I'm very concerned about penetration of the military and policing. Mm. You're going to make damn mm. sure that anybody who has violated their oath of office, and that includes lawmakers as well, you know, that those people are, just, you know, they, they, they lose their positions. And in the case of lawmakers, are banned from running again. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of steps. And the trick is to act with precision and resolve, but also not to overreact. So again, it goes back to that biding your time, making sure you understand what you're trying to achieve. And when you do strike, when you do have to take um, sort of executive action, you do it as, as sparingly as possible with as little collateral damage as possible. Um, and ideally, if you can take people alive and you prosecute them and you put them in jail and you don't, dear God, the last thing we need is new legislation. You know, I mean, you know, you know just well, there's plenty of tools. You know, you don't have to call someone a terrorist. Murder is a pretty bad label. You know, use use the, the, the laws we have and enforce the laws we have. Um, but make sure that you do it in a, in, a, in a measured manner that reflects the gravity of the situation but does not overreact and that is careful to distinguish you know, the, the, the performance artists from the real threat, right? You know, I mean, I, I don't think we genuinely have much to fear from the guy in the buffalo headgear, you know, and the, and the, and the face paint, right? I mean, that's not typical terrorist attire. Um, I am rather more concerned about people who, uh, you know, show up in combat fatigues, you know, you know yeah. body armor yeah. with you know, 20 yeah. magazines and yeah, radios and so mm. forth. You know, that, that's mm. a whole different thing. But as yet, those people have not committed a major act of violence. Right, with at least with their weapons. So, you know, you have to be very careful. You you have to hold people account for the offenses that they commit. One of the big problems that we have in the United States is it's very hard to know where to draw a line on some of this activity. You know, if you're allowed to carry a weapon openly, what law are you breaking? Well, the, the answer to that is none. Right? And you know, until you start to, to act offensively with that weapon, you you there's not a lot you could do in the United States. And when I could literally walk down the main street of the town I live in with an M16 and I won't be breaking the law if it's slung over my shoulder or it's very clear that I'm not trying to threaten anybody with it. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not uncommon. I often see people going around my daily business with guns on their belt. Yeah. I, I, you know? <laughs> one of the things that always crossed my mind, is America that dangerous to live in to warrant having to walk around with an M16 to go and buy a cup of coffee? No. Of course it's not. It's the short answer to that. Absolutely not. Not ever. This is a very safe, lovely society. And I live in, you know, yeah. we call it the southern slice of heaven where I live. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful spot. Um, you know, but I can be out walking the dog in the woods and come across three heavily armed men coming the other way with M4 carbines that they have incredibly been using to hunt deer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. which is, you know, which certainly doesn't seem very sporting. I mean, that's, that's perhaps an English legacy. <laughs> Um, but no, I mean, it, yeah, it, it, it's yeah. nuts and it's, it's juvenile and it's, it's posturing and, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's just a crazy thing. 
but it is it is here to stay. And if we got rid of the guns, I'd be meeting people with bows and arrows. I've met that. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. it, it's it's very hard to know. I mean, the genie is so out of the bottle here that it's it's difficult to see at this point what you could do to get the guns out of American society. And, and that is an X factor here in the United States that just no other country I'm aware of is like. I mean, you know, even, even Afghan or, or Iraqi society isn't as heavily armed as the United States. Mm. I mean, mm. seriously. I mean, most Iraqis I knew probably had an AK-47 somewhere that they could access if they needed it. Um, you know, but people here would have, you know, some, some people at least would have multiple weapons. It's not uncommon to see somebody open their car door and there's an automatic pistol in the, you know, in the glove, glove compartment or the map case thing down the side of the door. Um, I was having my hair cut the other day and there was somebody came in with a gun on their belt. My first thought is, you know, is he law enforcement? I'm looking for a badge. It, it's, 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 it's crazy, but it, it's, it is an aspect of American life and it, it is, mm. you know, it, some mm. of it's a legacy of that frontier life. Some of it is, mm. I, I think television culture has a lot to do with it. Yeah. I wonder that as a, as a filmmaker myself, I do wonder. <laughs> well, you know, there, there was a, a cop the other day, um, it's a couple of months ago now, and I, I forget which, mm. which city it was in who fired his pistol at a fleeing car through his windshield at the car in front. Uh, and nobody in their right mind would do that. No one would certainly have ever trained him to do that. But you see people do it on TV all the time. And I'm, I'm sure that's where that idea came from, right? You know, it's just like, I, I don't think he was an idiot necessarily. I think he was caught up in the moment. The, and, and that sort of cultural reflex kicked in and he did it. Uh, who knows? But, but you know, it is a... It, it, it is a very, very strange aspect of American life. As somebody who's lived here for 20 years, mm. I still find it really, really strange. Yeah, um, yeah. And it, it just, it is what it is. And it, it isn't going to change anytime soon. I can, I can assure you of that. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Well, one, one last question, um, bef- and, and I'll let you go. Uh, we briefly spoke about this off there, but, um, both in the UK and Europe, we're still sort of facing, um, not only a threat from the far right, but also from Islamist inspired terrorism groups such as ISIS, uh, and possibly even Al Qaeda. And in France, uh, there've been a recent large number of terrorist attacks. And I was wondering what sort of your recommendations with your experience would be encountering that threat, because there's a lot of debate going on in France very much at the moment about this. Yeah, I think it's very hard. Every terrorist threat is unique to the, the to the to the area that where yeah. it, where it occurs, right? Um, even something like Islamist extremism is mm. kind of different in France than it would be in the UK or mm. in Germany. Um, you know, and that's got a lot to do with some of the you know the historical and cultural you know, baggage that France has, um, the relationships it's had with other countries, and then some of it is to do with its you know, current politics, with a, again a you know, strong far right movement. Some of it's to do with some of the actions taken by the government and this, you know, this concept of secularism that's so important to, to French national identity. You know, all of that makes the, you know, France, uh, you know, it has its own unique, um, landscape within which French policymakers have to try and figure out how to respond to this. Um, I, I, and unfortunately, you know, as I, as I keep seeing to, to, to be saying, it, you know, there aren't easy answers. You know, I, I tend to be a bit of a, a you know, wishy-washy liberal about these things in the sense that trying to find space for most people to live the lives that they want to live within the context of the society they're in is probably your best solution. But there are always people who push it to extremes. There are always people who go too far. And there are always people who want to exert their freedom by denying other people's freedom. Um, if you look at international human rights law, there are very few human rights that are absolute. Most are restricted or limited in some way. Um, and that means that they are either, you know, there's either some textual limitation to the rights or restriction on the rights where 
you know, it, it, you know, for example, if we're talking about freedom of speech, the international standard doesn't protect hate speech, right? The 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 um, American standard does. You know, the Bill of Rights in the United States it's it's very permissive. The international human rights standard actually is, is a little bit more restrictive. You can't advocate for war. You can't you can't spread hate speech. Um, so there there are restrictions on the the use of their right. That right, um, you can't libel people, right? You can't lie about people. Um, a, a lot of our rights are limited by other people's enjoyment of their rights, right? Your religious rights, you know, you 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 can't enforce your religion on someone else. So your enjoyment is, you know, to, there are certain limits on it. So other people could enjoy the rights they want and you know the worship in the way they want and believe what they want uh, or not believe in anything. Um, so there has to be some acceptation, some some acceptance on the part of all parties in society that you know that there are limits to to what they can do and how they can do it because of where they live, partially, and also because of the fact that they live with other people and they have to take them into account as well. You know. When you have people that are refusing to, ref to, to respect that, you have a problem. Uh, and sometimes that problem could only be met with enforcement action of one sort or another. Um, but, you know, I, I think my, my takeaway message is always that enforcement action should be used as sparingly as possible. Mm. And in fact, a nice way to finish this mm. is by talking about sort of an analogy you hear a lot about terrorism, which mm. is it's often described as the war of the flick. Um, and the War of the Flea is a, is a, is a concept, actually, that, that Mao Zedong came up with about guerrilla warfare, but, it, but it, it's often also applied to terrorism as well. Um, and, and it's often simply understood as the war of the big against the small or the small against the big. Right? But that's to completely misunderstand Mao's metaphor, because he's very explicit about how he sees the War of the Flea operating. And what he says is not that the flea bites overwhelm the dog. What actually overwhelms the dog is scratching at the bites, and the bites become infected, the dog becomes exhausted and worn down, and that's when the dog collapses. So the takeaway from Mao's metaphor is actually that the war of the flea is not about the flea at all, it's all about the dog, it's all about how the dog responds. And, and that's the reality of most counterterrorism. It's actually much more about us and how we respond than it is about what the other side does. The other side is very rarely, no matter how high-profile the incidents are, they are still essentially flea bites. Even something like 9-11 is still, you know, on a, on a sort of a military um, calculus, a relatively minor attack in the cosmic scheme of things when you're the United States of America. Well, COVID's killed more people than 9-11, hasn't it? COVID's killing more people every day at the yeah. moment than 9-11. Than, than but, I mean, that, that's, that's an easy, facile comparison to make, but there is something about the political challenge that is made by a group, which is different to what a disease does, right? I mean, you know, a, a, a physical challenge is a physical challenge, whether it's on the, the playground or whether it's in real life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, governments cannot let challenges go unanswered. Challenges to their legitimacy, to, 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 to their control, of the state, you know, and it's a particularly if it's a democratic elected government, it's legitimate control of the state. They they have to respond to those challenges, um, and so you know you can't ignore them. You you have to just respond effectively. At the end of the day, and what I said in the book, in, in the introduction to the book, is you know I didn't write a book about human rights. I wrote a book about defeating terrorism. Um, my I didn't get into the line of work I got into as a human rights person. I got into it as a counterterrorism officer. I came across human rights very late in my intellectual development. 
um, as a concept as something to think about. It's not something I ever thought about as a practitioner. Um, and it, it, you know, to me, it gave me a framework that articulated the concerns that I had had and the experiences that I had had trying to do the job in the field. And, you know, and I came to realize that actually this is a pretty helpful framework. This actually stops me. It actually protects me from the pressure to go too far. It actually helps me act with deliberation and control, mm. Mm. you know, where, where, you know, my instinct might not always be to react that way. Um, and I, I came to realize that was really, really helpful. Um, and so, you know, my takeaway from all of this has always been, you know, uh, certainly a, an element of less is more, you know, because it's, you know, you can only land a punch effectively if you know where to land it. Um, and, you know, the, the inherent difficulty with terrorists is they're very hard to find. You know, they're very hard to spot. They, you know, their, their whole, you know, uh, way of war is to, to melt into the shadows and attack when you're not expecting it. So it becomes very, very difficult to use force effectively. In fact, uh, um, a guy called Nikolai Morozov, a Russian anarchist from the 19th century, you know, he, he has this great phrase, you know, force is useless against the invisible enemy. Um, and, and there's a lot of truth to that. You know, your, your challenge, just like it would be in, you know, military operations as a counter-terrorist is to find the enemy and fix him in a point in space and time so you can take action against him. Now that, unlike on the battlefield, is not necessarily going to be kinetic action. Um, it might be to leave that person in play and just spy the hell out of them so you can find out more about the network. But the trick is to find your target and act with precision. And if you can do that, you know, you're, you're going to prevent an awful lot of mistakes. The last thing you want to be doing is that classic line from Casablanca, round up the usual suspects. Yeah. Right? Because all you're going to do then is, is become a false multiplier for the other side. You know, you, you have to act with credibility. You have to act with precision. You have to explain what you're doing and why you're doing it, why it's important. And you have to act in as transparent a manner as you can. If you could do those things, you are likely to carry the bulk of the public with you. But, you know, that isn't to say it's easy. It's not. It's not to say that you won't come under pressure to act differently. You will. Um, and, you know, if there is a lot of legitimacy to the other side of the argument, it may be that at some point you're going to have to take a step back and examine those arguments and see whether there's some validity to it. Most terrorist campaigns, just a little over half, end in some form of negotiated political settlement. So that's something else. It's much easier to do business with people, with people you've treated fairly than people you've treated harshly. Um, and the likelihood is in wherever you are and whatever conflict you're fighting sooner or later, you're going to be meeting across a negotiating table. So it's a good idea to leave yourself some space to do that. No, wise words. Well, Tom, where can listeners find out more about you, your work, and your brilliant book? Uh, well, the, there is a website for the book, Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, uh, yeah. and that has links to uh, some of the academic articles that I've, I've written over the years. Um, I mean, I'm not an academic. I'm not a, I'm not a writer. I am a practitioner, so there's not a huge body of work out there to refer people to. But, you know, I would encourage people to, to, you know, if they're interested in this topic, to take a look at the book. The electronic copy is is really quite affordable. Um, the hardback is is lovely, but it is it is pricey. But there should be a paperback along fairly soon. And if people are interested, then keep an eye on the website or they can follow me at Twitter uh, on uh, at TDG Parker. Um, you know, they, they'll, they'll be sort of news about the paperback when it comes out there as well. And there is a, a discount code um, associated at the moment uh, with both the electronic and hard copies of the book, uh, which perhaps you could put in the, the, the show notes. Yes, yes, they will be in the show notes of listeners. Um, just scroll through their app. They'll be able to see those show notes now. 
Brilliant. So look, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really great. Hey, Chris, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.